Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Just because the Christmas season is in the rearview mirror doesn't mean you can't still give. In fact, the combined federal campaign continues until January 15th. Here with a summary of the most recent campaign, the chair of the CFC for the National Capital Region, Vince McCone. Vince, good to have you back. Tom, thank you very much. It's great to be here again. And how has the campaign gone this year? What were your goals and where are we at this point with still, you know, a week and a half to go? Well, we're in strong shape right now. Across the nation, $52 million has been raised by federal employees. Here in the D.C. area, in the DMV, we've raised over $26 million. That's half of the national total. And the last two weeks of the campaign are very important to us. They're actually $5 million weeks. Uh, by the 15th, we hope to get about $10 million more support causes and charities in the region, around the country, and across the globe. Because federal employees will have had an average of 4 to 5% pay raise. I wonder if that'll help boost the giving in the 2024 period for the 23 campaign. Well, you know, I think uh, getting that gift from Uncle Sam means maybe we ought to give a little bit of a gift back to the community. You know, the average gift um, in the DMV from federal employees is just over $1,000 in CFC contributions, whether people give one time through payroll deduction um, or if they pledge volunteer hours. It's, It's a pretty significant amount that federal employees contribute annually. And what is the most common mode of giving? How do people normally give a payroll deduction of cash and they pick a charity or what's what's the mode here? The, the most common way that federal employees give is through payroll deduction where a little bit's taken out of every paycheck, whether it's um, biweekly or um, twice a month or, or monthly uh, pay. Um, and so folks may contribute 10, 15, 25, 100 dollars a pay period. They can pick one charity, multiple charities. Um, There's a lot of flexibility in the campaign, which is what makes it so popular. And maybe just review the roster of charities this year. Some of them come and go, but there's some eternals on that list. And it's a big list, isn't it? We have 5,000 charities right now in the campaign. And one thing all the listeners should know is that every year, all of these charity partners are reviewed by federal employees to make sure that they're legitimate uh, 501c3 nonprofits, uh, that they um, have audits if required, and that they they follow good practices. So they're they're legitimate charities in the campaign. Are there any that stand out as popular among feds? You know, I haven't really seen what the numbers look like this year in terms of the breakout. That usually comes later. But I, I would say that typically a lot of charities that focus on immediate community needs, like providing housing for the unhoused, feeding programs, and programs that work with kids, tutoring, mentoring, um, are very, very popular. And of course, they're very local. Uh, They hit to home uh, in communities uh, in the DMV or around the nation where people live. People want to make a difference right in their neighborhoods. And what kind of backup? I mean, we've reviewed this before, but there's a standing staff and a lot of volunteers on the campaign itself because you do have a full-time job at the Labor Department. Combined Federal Campaign is driven by federal volunteers. It always has been. I started out as a key worker when I started my career at the Department of Justice in the early 90s, and I've been involved ever since then. We have a small staff that we work with, um, and OPM has a few staff members that run the programs nationally. And a lot of what our staff does uh, is help really drive the volunteer activities, those um, volunteers that are managing campaigns and their agencies on the national level, the events and activities that we have. We've seen a great uptick in those um, coming out of the pandemic. We're we're doing um, in-office and in-building programs again, and those have been great. In fact, we're doing a volunteer project tomorrow 
um, at uh, a local nonprofit with uh, members of our local federal coordinating committee, our board of directors, our campaign managers. Uh, we just want to make sure that we're on uh, the right footing as we go into the last couple of weeks and, and understand the impact of what we're doing and why we do it. We are speaking with Vince McCone. He's chairman of the Combined Federal Campaign for the National Capital Region. And why do you suppose it is that in the National Capital Region, which actually doesn't have the majority of federal employees, they're actually all over the country, there's about 300,000 in the DMV, if you will, that is the leader in giving, though, compared to some of the big federal centers around the country? Well, I think that really is a hat tip to the volunteers that work on the campaign. People feel very passionately, and they'll they'll, um, have the CFC be something that they do every fall, um, as their commitment to the community and, and an understanding of public services more than just what we do at the office. It's, it's an approach um, to how we impact our communities. So I think there's a great tradition uh, in the DMV that people are, are engaged in this every year and look forward to it. And frankly, the CFC for many agencies is used as an opportunity to step from our day-to-day work and do some fun things. So there's also some engagement activities that are a part of that. And so when you put that combination of strong volunteer commitment and engagement of employees, I think you have an opportunity for us really to stand out. And so it's a real tradition. For those hearing this and decide, I want to give now at this point and haven't yet, what do they need to do, federal employees? Very easy. Go to givecfc.org on your phone, on your work computer. Um, If you have given before, you can go back into your account, re-up your last contribution. If you're new, you can go there, set up your account, or go to one of the app stores and get the um, CFC app and start your contribution. Now, we, we like cash. Um, nonprofits like the cash infusion that comes through the CFC because there are dollars that they can use at, to address needs throughout the entire year. But through the CFC, you can also commit to volunteer. And that's something I'm very excited about. So far, federal employees in our region have pledged almost 50,000 volunteer hours, which is holding steady from last year. And I noticed uh, last month there was a Washington Post article talking about how volunteerism uh, and contributions to nonprofits have been lagging nationally. And one thing I'm very excited about is they're not lagging here in the federal sector. Uh, And that, I think, really has to do with the leadership that our volunteers um, have about the importance of volunteering, getting out into the community, giving, either through the CFC or, frankly, any way that an employee wants to do. It's just important to have those commitments. And if you volunteer year-round for a place, say one of the food banks where they need sorting and boxing of food to send out to people and this kind of thing, it's a year-round need. Can the year-long volunteering count towards your CFC contribution each year? Yes. We actually um, monetize the volunteer hours as part of our contribution. So, so far, the volunteer hours that have been committed to date represent $1.2 million in contributions to charities locally. All right. And I'm curious, now that the government is as back to work as it's going to be, probably, with people in a few days a week, whatever, what have the trends been in the pandemic with respect to CFC levels of, of collections? And is it on the rise now that people are somewhat back to work or what's going on there? I think I would characterize it as steady. I want to look at the numbers from this year's campaign because I think those will be very telling now that the pandemic is over uh, and uh, now that we are uh, in uh, a new hybrid work environment where people are in the office more, there's some teleworking. uh, I think we need to assess what things are going to look like um, based on this year's giving. But right now we're holding firm to where we were last year, which is encouraging. 
the we saw a huge increase in the number of in um, office events this year. And those were very exciting and, and very energizing. You know, look, we, we did a lot of the activities during the pandemic and they were fun. There were ways to connect um, during tough times. But there's nothing like having a cookie chill, like uh, a cookie, a, a chili or cookie cook off where you're with your um, colleagues and, and you can experience that together. It's just not the same when you share your recipe on a Zoom call. All right. So 10 more days or so to go. Make sure you get out there. And if you haven't, do that give. Vince McCone is chairman of the Combined Federal Campaign for the National Capital Region. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. We encourage everyone to give happy, help us have a strong end to the campaign. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, and we'll have a link to the CFC for you. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few. And you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes. And I, I 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. 
and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.